0: show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk, but we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee show. Welcome.
1: My is Mike Fenton-Stevens. You're listening to The Dr. Squeeze Show on The Bear. Now put your
2: clothes back on. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to The Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee, and this is my show. We've got an amazing one coming up for you as well. We've got two interviews with uh, director and writer Lily Matter and actor Terry Ivins, and they're going to be both talking about the new film 86 Melrose Avenue, which uh, I was delighted to get a screener of uh, to review, ready for the interviews. Really great film. I highly recommend you check it out. That's going to be available on demand on the 20th of April, where I'm sure wherever you get your stream. We talk a bit about where you can get it, Um, but it's a good deal. Do check it out. And uh, as well as talking about that film... Terry Ivans by the way, if you don't know the name, look her up. She has been in everything you love, basically, all the way back to Doogie Howser, MD, to the new reboot they've got of Punky Brewster. She's done it all. So um, really great interview, and, and as it was with uh, Lily as well. But uh, tonight, before we get into it, just very quickly, I want to just um, inject a bit of positivity into something. Uh, I work during the day on the immunisation management service uh, for the NHS, and uh, I'm kind of a bit, a small part in the chain, if you like, of uh, all the vaccine programmes. So um, I'm a team leader for my team of people who call and uh, do a follow up and book people in for their uh, COVID vaccination. And just it's all these stories about um, AstraZeneca, which are in the news. And I think it's sensible where it's a new side effect that's kind of come to light, potentially caused by AstraZeneca, that they've uh, stopped giving AstraZeneca to younger people who are more prone to be susceptible to, to these blood clots, which are being caused. I think a sensible precaution, but but I just hope people realize, just remember the science, it's one in a million chance that that would happen. So it's really still safe. Uh, I'm really proud of uh, my dear lady, Nicola, who got her vaccine earlier today. It's still the right thing to do, guys. Uh, there's loads of side effects, which we already knew about, which kind of, um, which are just as likely to kill you from this vaccine so such a tiny percentage but they're known about so you know we don't even think about it but this is just one which is in the news at the moment because it's just been discovered again that's a fine reason for caution but um please guys it's still a great idea to get vaccinated please everyone get vaccinated that's what i'm getting at hopefully uh all said with love and kindness of course people uh, so we're going to get into the interviews in a minute but before we do just a bit of time for a little bit of nepotism here on the dr Squeeze show on the bear my uh cousin's daughter uh, is now recording under the name clementine and she sent me her new single which is out now and uh, please do stream it and download it wherever you can oh Today, on a double interview day, we're gonna be talking all things 86 Melrose Avenue, along with so much more with my two guests today. The first of which is up right now. So uh, she's an actor who's been in basically everything from uh, Highway to Heaven to Doogie Howser, ABC's After School special, The Monsters Today, Coach, Baywatch, Melrose Place, Boy Meets World, Married with Children, Breast Men, the film with David Schwimmer, All My Children, Pir- Piranha Conda, uh, and her own chat show, going to bed with terry ivans you'll never guess who it is terry ivans how are you doing today terry
3: oh you know what
2: it's looking pretty good right now <laughs> <laughs> i mean just like I, I feel like i have to start every interview at the moment with how are you how's this year been like how have you been coping especially in the entertainment industry how's it all been for you well, I've
3: I've been in this business for over 30 years, and I've seen the business morph over major times, whether it be institutional or uh, catastrophic, like 9-11. Uh, I was on a soap opera f- on ABC called All My Children, and I was lucky enough to be employed on that show when 9-11 hit. The, industry, in the entertainment industry, let alone other industries just collapsed, right? They went silent. And it was a very similar feeling that I had last year in the first, you know, last weeks, I guess the last weeks of March, where we went down basically all of us in the entire world into a shutdown. And I had that same feeling as 9-11 and I'm seeing the aftermath as we go- walk through the same thing with every institution things are changing and I and it'll be interesting to see what never goes back to what used to be and sometimes a lot of that's going to be great right because we always need to improve and grow as people uh it's like interviews for you know now every audition interview is like this it's zoom and so I'm responsible for everything right when pre-last year i would go into an office like anyone else would and you would do a face-to-face interview well the pros for me going face to face is i'm face to face there's a personal connection a a smile that you can readily hopefully feel right but on the zoom i'm now i'm two-dimensional right it's uh, uh there's no uh you can't feel the warmth that i bring into a room right i'm not walking in and lighting it up right but we have to adapt and i think I was talking to my manager last night. I don't know if interviews will ever go back to the way they were. I think they're gonna keep it at Zoom because economically for casting directors and production houses, it's so much cheaper. They don't have to rent space. Uh, You think of pollution, they are not tons, hundreds of actors driving back and forth and all over Hollywood, right? We're all at home. So it'll be interesting to see. I'm hoping that the caliber and quality of films rises because all of the um, SAG mandates that are put in place are really kind of hurting the um, lower budget and ultra low budget films because they can't afford all of the protocols that are needed for COVID. So it's going to be interesting to see how the business changes. But as always... You know, the entertainment business will survive and it will thrive again. You know, Mardi Gras, not Mardi Gras, vaudeville once upon a time was the height, right, of all entertainment. And that, you know, went away, thankfully. So, you know, <laughs> other I forms, some, world will too. I,
2: I think there's something what you were saying there, though, that it's like, you know, nine eleven is pr- probably kind of the best parallel in recent times we've got. But even with that, that was... As horrific as it was, and I'm no way undermined that whatsoever. But like, right. you know, that was one area of America, and right. was America was in shock for it for a long time. And obviously it changed flight then going forward. But right. but at the end of the day, like, you know, the the people were able to, in most parts, lead a normal life after that, like go back to life because but this is everywhere. This is all over the world, and this is so kind of like fundamental. As you say, it kind of changes. What you're allowed to do on a film set and how much it costs, which is kind of very kind of dangerous for these independent projects.
3: Right. And not just entertainment, but all businesses. I mean, just think of like what you said about the airlines. Right. Post or pre 9-11, they used to give us pillows and blankets. Right. We, we could walk around back and forth and. Um, you're right and after 9-11 I had a child I couldn't bring in baby formula or apple juice or chicken fingers like they wouldn't let me bring anything and I'm like oh my god I'm flying from New York City to California with an infant and you're not letting me bring anything but that was the new rule and now very little all these what it's almost 20 years or it is 20 years later just about they still won't let you bring in you know, liquids, right? So it'll be interesting. Yeah. I I wonder, you know, like, with the vaccine, I'm all for independent businesses having control over their business. So if they say no, right for refusal of service, I'm like, hey, that's it's your thing. So it'll be interesting to see like what transportation does uh, with the vaccine thing. And, you know, everybody wants to make things political. I, for me, it's, It's just, uh, I want to make people comfortable. So if if it makes the people around me more comfortable that I have a mask on, then I have no problem wearing one. If it makes them more comfortable for me to have a mask off, I'm happy to have it off. But then, you know, as a germaphobe, I'm like, okay, I appreciate the distance too.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I want to make feel, people feel comfortable too, but you might have to persuade me for the mask to be off that, that everything's really safe myself.
3: I know, right? <laughs> because once you catch it, man, everybody's, it's kind of like, um, what's that other awful, ugly disease, uh, meningitis, where it just affects everyone's system different. So, yeah. you know, this thing, I actually, I wasn't going to tell anyone, but I'll tell you, I got my Johnson & Johnson shot yesterday.
2: Hey, one, look, the one shot.
3: The one shot, one and done. I was so excited about oh. that. I'm not really a needle person. I my my boyfriend says you can take the really out of that statement Terry. but uh, yeah, but look next morning, I'm feeling good. my arm doesn't even hurt, you know, I did I did the exercises to keep it moving through the blood. but um, you know, I went through that period of time where they're like, look for symptoms. And here I am, I'm feeling good, and I feel that much more safe that when I see my mom tomorrow, maybe I get to give her a hug since I haven't touched her in over a year.
2: Yeah, that's that's the strangest, like just not being able to see family or like hug them yeah. if you do. And yeah, I mean, I, I've got my first shot so far, and I, I thought it might make me feel a little bit better. But if anything else, I'm like, no, I've got this far. I'm going to wait until I've got the second shot, because like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm on the two shot system
3: yeah absolutely absolutely again but it's what people feel comfortable with because i think if individual if we are comfortable with ourselves then we can project a more positive uh you know projection and therefore it should it should be catching the positive should catch we have so much negative and it seems the negative sticks to people whether you realize it or not and we have to chase the positive, literally, like chase joy, find it for your daily life, you know, whatever there is that is lovely to talk about, if there's anything of a good report, because there's always many reports, right? But we want to yep. find a good report and meditate on that for our own sanity.
2: Here, here, we're all for kindness is the kind of like, uh, the motto of this, this show, certainly. So uh, oh, let's. Let's get on to you though, come on. So uh, like you've been in the business for 30 years, which by the way, doesn't look possible. I just have to put it out there. But uh, yeah, how did it all kind of start for you getting into acting?
3: Oh my gosh, uh, well, I was a teenager. And my dad was in the entertainment business. He was a rock drummer. He played with uh, Freddie Fender, who was, you know, people most likely know him as the Fender guitar, but he's this huge rock and roller dude, right? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up um, backstage. uh, I met Kiss, the band Kiss, without their makeup on when I was a child. I think I was like 11 or 12. So as a second generation entertainment kid, I did have that help, but not big enough coattails like, you know, if I was a Terry Hanks, you know, I mean, that would have been a lot better. (laughs) But uh, yeah, then I did a, a, a beauty pageant for seniors in high school called America's Junior Miss. And I received, I didn't win the whole thing, but I won enough scholarship money that I paid for college and I moved to California on my own instead of traveling back and forth with my parents uh and that's kind of how it started uh within two years i was up and going on my own fox had just started becoming their own network so i did one of the first tv series for fox called boys will be boys with matthew perry from friends huh? Yep. And we were boyfriend and girlfriend, and we were so young, we were babies. And I became a Fox girl and worked a lot of the Fox shows early on, in you know, in the beginning of their conception as a
2: network. Because I know Matthew Perry did like every pilot under the sun before he actually landed on Friends.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, we ran into each other in a supermarket, you know, ages ago before Friends, and he was so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> we already had our show and our show went and probably would have continued to go but the writer's strike hit during those years i think it was 1990 or something and so all the shows went flat uh but we were already like in our eighth episode when our our plug got pulled but i remember seeing him and him going you know at one point terry you just have to look at the common denominator and the common denominator
0: is
2: me <laughs> <laughs> <Bless> <laughs>
3: but thankfully he was wrong he's a success
2: yeah no that's good to see and uh for you like where you your your dad was in the entertainment business and in rock and roll itself does that make him more strict or less because he's seen a lot of stuff as the other thing
3: oh yeah like I was (laughs) never allowed to date a musician like never (laughs) and I you know and I have but my dad is never approved he's like yeah no that and like a first baseman he's like no those are the worst type of men First baseman meaning not on the bass guitar but on baseball. Right.
2: Oh right. Sorry. You <laughs> over my English head right there. I was like, yeah, yeah. it's like the yeah, guitar. Yeah. That's where, where right. I had to
3: clarify. Yeah. But my dad was very um he's creative. So he you know, I felt nothing but support when I wanted to pursue acting. Um and and I just did my first singing gig ever on television for the reboot yeah funky booster i was so excited and we filmed it during the lockdown and so i had to go through the whole thing of nbc and universal where we were stuck in our own little color pods i got covid testing twice maybe three times a day uh i live in quarantine and you're like this is for a sitcom kid show really (laughs) but hey we are all safe they did an entire season, which is remarkable. Uh most productions, or not I should say most, but any production that had three people that came down with COVID, the entire production company got shut down.
2: Yeah, because there was that uh video. Oh, I'm trying to remember, it was um Tom Cruise. Yes. Like of him freaking out on the set, which yeah. everyone kind of like there was a lot of kind of negative press for him, but I kind of understood where it was coming from. Like if If you get too many bad COVID tests, then anyone loses their job. I I kind of felt for him.
3: Absolutely. And I think he was at his last straw when we, because of course, you know, the media only wants to give us the worst of everything, right? It may be, you know, a riot on one corner, but it makes it look like it's a riot throughout the entire city, right? And vice versa, no matter. So uh, living it and being actually driving on a major studio lot here in, in Los Angeles, it, I mean, they took it so serious. I mean, it was like a little ant farm of watching all the different testing and actors and and like you weren't allowed to walk around the lot to see your other friends that may be on another stage. Like, and, and, oh, 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 this is, so there's a show here, I don't know if you guys get it, Um, called, um, it's not American Idol, it's The Voice. So The Voice yeah, film, yeah on NBC and they had this, this, uh, singer who was this operatic guy who was amazing. And then I, I didn't watch all that much that season. And all of a sudden I, I realized he was gone. So I just figured he must've gotten voted off. But I'm like, I don't know how, cause he, I mean, he was amazing. And then I learned while I was there that he didn't follow the COVID protocol while he was on the stage or there on the lot. And he got released. He got fired from the just like that. And they told me I had to go through a two-hour course of the do's and don'ts of just the lot. And they said their people are walking around for your protection. But they weren't there for my protection. They were there to blow the whistle. So if you got reported once, it was a warning. Twice, you were fired.
2: Wow. Did you get any warnings? No, okay, are you saying,
3: kidding? I walk around with a mask and a shield. <laughs> I have my personalized ionic thing that makes all the, the particles that fly out of people's mouth just drop to the ground.
2: Because <laughs> I did notice, like I might I I'm actually curious about this because watching TV shows now. I know that they've kind of got just uh, really rigorous testing so they can have people in close proximity, but it right. seems like the staging is slightly different. Like if people yeah. can be a part, they seem to be more. Am I just imagining that or to, have they been doing that more?
3: No, I mean, you have to think about it. Like I do another show that's multi Emmy winning called The Bay that's on Amazon and I play a prostitute. Well, you know, physical distancing is not part of her craft. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm so good at this character because I socially distance. So it's interesting because I had to trust that the actors that I was working opposite were quarantining or, you know, living quarantined quote lifestyle while we were filming because even though we weren't kissing or we, you know, we had clothes on, we still, I mean, even proximity, I would, I, I felt weird not, I actually actually ask, like, is it all right if I touch you? And I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but I'll occasionally meet someone, uh, especially after we've been tested and whatnot. They're like, Terry, and they want to run up and initially just give you a hug. And I feel like I'm, you know, the kitty cat from Pepe Le Pew. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, oh hi, it's great to see you. But i have frozen because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It's like etiquette on how we're supposed to be cordial and polite. And yeah. you know, I don't know where that line is anymore. And I think as a society of the global world, we need to come up with what that is. Because I don't want to offend. And I don't, I don't know anything more offensive than someone reaching out and touching you. And you're going, oh, hi, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that's me right now. So I don't <laughs>
2: Yeah, when they um, because we've been in and out of lockdown, it's kind of all been a bit crazy here in the UK and England. We like we've we've even yeah. got in different parts of the UK, England, uh, Wales, and Scotland have got different rules. But uh, at one stage, we were kind of out of it for a little while, uh, but we meant to still socially distance when out. Yeah. And uh, this friend of mine, like, we met up with a few friends from college, and. Uh, one of them went to hug me, and I go, she goes, oh, no, I don't mind. I'm a store. I go, yeah, yeah, and I'm healthy, and I want us all to stay that way. No, so let's, I, just keep, like, let's be really friendly from afar.
3: I, I always, when I see someone coming up all excited, I'm like, jump hug, jump hug, jump hug, <laughs> to keep the distance. And then they laugh, and like, oh, okay, yeah, jump hug, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's ridiculous, but I'd rather be safe than sorry.
2: Definitely, definitely. And I'd rather cause a little bit of offense than get a lot of COVID, to be honest with you. Okay.
3: <laughs> I think the worst is if I ever found out that someone that I had just seen or whatnot got sick, right? And then I'm thinking, oh, my God. I Not that I just saw that maybe I'm sick, but, oh, my God, am I one of those people that didn't even know I had it and I just gave it to someone? Like, that yeah. thing is just horrifying.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, my mom's in her 80s, like, so I've just um, – <laughs> I'd rather not see her for, for a year, which has been really difficult, but really? then than risk giving anything to her.
3: Yeah. The whole, uh, you know, through the window, I, I had mother's day through the window with my mom and yeah, the whole, whole nine yards, which I kind of think she's appreciating in a deeper level. Cause I got my germophobia from someone. <laughs> <Hereditary>. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> Let's
2: talk about some of your projects though. So like, uh, some of the ones which jumped out to me, just like the ones which made us over here, probably more than anything. But Highway to Heaven—that was oh, that, that was on every Sunday throughout my childhood. Yeah. Uh, tell us a bit about going on that one.
3: Oh my God! Working with Michael Landon was one of my first bucket lists, right? Because we grew up with him, right? Little House on the Prairie, and so when Highway to Heaven came out, and it was one of my early jobs because I was a high schooler. Um, I can see, I can contest, and I can see the episode. It was uh, with Mr. Zelenka, who was like 82, 83 years old. And his name is Lou Ayers. And he played like our teacher that we were celebrating. He, that actor, who's no longer with us, rest his beautiful soul, gave me the wonderful gold nugget, which I'll share with you. But he, he was 80 some years old. And he was in the first movie that ever won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Right. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Lou, what was that like? I mean, that must have been amazing. And he's like, to be honest, we had no idea what it was. And the picture was about World War One. And then I went and fought in World War Two. I'm like, <laughs> okay, it kind of puts everything in order, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So- I mean, they told us this was an Oscar. Yeah, cool. Okay, whatever. (laughs) Right?
3: right? And so then his gold nugget, because everyone I worked with that was of that stature of amazement to me, I would ask, give me a gold nugget for me to take on with my career. And Lou Ayers was so kind. And he said, get the lowest billing you can possibly get. Even if you're starring in the movie, get your billing below the title. And I'm like, what? And he's like, because anything above the title takes responsibility for the film. And most films are going to be a flop. And he goes right. And he goes, and if you're in the movie at all, get the lowest billing possible and you will work forever. And I'm like, okay. And guess what? I guess he's right. Because I've never really fought for billing. My agents somewhat do, but I personally don't, I kind of take what comes. And uh, 30 plus
2: years Lou Harris was right. Yeah, because uh, like I, I we've all seen these films where actors like fight to get their name put down no. or taken off when it's flopping.
3: Right. And then what do you do? You remember that. And it's not just the audience that remembers, it's the studio heads because they don't even watch the movie. They just see the numbers, right? Yeah. So that's what Lou Ayers is really talking about. It's like getting over your own self-promotion back then when promotion was just where your name falls in a billing not about how many likes you have so but again it's just about the numbers and that's really all the studio heads i believe look at because they've got so much going on they really unless you know their assistants do deep seated research which their research according to everyone is always about the numbers
2: yeah, because, I mean, there is, of course, there is something to playing a character for a long period of time, kind of getting in that skin of the character for a long time, as you've done, uh, like, in All My Children. But I I find kind of uh, character actors, uh, I don't know if you call yourself that, but, like, it, it seems to be your kind of career, uh, I just get to do the most, kind of all the stuff. You get to do all the different parts. You get to play with all the toys.
3: You know, I had a I have a wonderful acting coach that I've had basically my entire life, Andrew McGarrian, and he teaches by the moment being in the moment. Right. We're in a moment right now. I'm going to be aware of what you say and really listen. And it's those things that give you the heads up as an artist in acting it's so it shouldn't be called acting it should be called reacting right it's really about listening because how do you know or i know what the next person is going to say right in this moment but if we're engaged and we have eye contact and we're listening then it's more interesting and in that then the doors open for all different kinds of characters which is the fun of acting If you're just playing yourself and you're just thinking about how I would act in this situation or how I would behave in a situation, that's fine. But the whole point is is bringing, having fun as the person is bringing together all these other avenues, having a perspective other than your own and approaching it from that Point of view how would this person who lost their mother and father at childbirth you know how would they look at you know and so to do character acting for me is the biggest compliment especially because i, I can get pigeonholed in just like my face or uh maybe you know what i look like whether it's skin the hair right and if i'm a character actor then i'm allowed to you know be, they call it in Hollywood dumbed down, which I'm sure they're going to quit using that because it's a term to uh, not be as camera friendly, not being, you know, as, because they can put makeup on a certain way and make you go, wow, she's gorgeous, beautiful, or he's gorgeous, beautiful. And then they can dumb you down. And that's meant to say that you're not so attractive. I'm sure that's not PC and that they're probably removing that right now.
2: <laughs> yeah. Cause it's like, I, I love it when they do that on films as well. they, put someone in who's blatantly a gorgeous human being and yes. they dumb them down. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're blatantly still a gorgeous human being. Like yes. don't try and don't try and monkey with us like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so that's it's me- the nerdy character who removes removes the glasses and waves their hair around and then <laughs> suddenly they're gorgeous. Like, no, they were gorgeous already. <laughs>
3: Well, that's what Clint Eastwood said about Angelina Jolie when he directed her in that wonderful movie that was a period piece where she played the mother where her son was uh, kidnapped. And he said, the greatest tragedy with her talent is that she's so gorgeous, you can't hide it. And, you know, yeah, that's a wonderful compliment. But as a character actor, it makes it really tough because she's so, her, 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 Things are just so prominent that uh, it's hard. She'd have to use prosthetics like, you know, Nicole Kidman, you know? Yeah, because like, I, mean, I appreciate Right? And then even then, look at the women and then the men. It's not even a gender thing. It's like... Uh, Like an itis, everyone has got like Botox itis. They're they're afraid to age because they're they're like uh, there's no parts written for people over a certain age. Everyone wants to stay as young as possible. You said it yourself. You can't believe I've been in in the business for over 30 years. You know, there's pressure. So what are you gonna do? And how do you age gracefully? And how do I teach my daughter to grow old gracefully and with joy? Right.
2: Yeah, because there, there is this whole thing of like they'd rather hire someone who is young and attractive and make them look old oh and God. make them look like they've got gray hair and do all this stuff to make them look like Which someone looks- they could, should just hire. They could yeah. hire someone who is older or who looks like that, but they'd rather hire someone gorgeous they can make out to look different. And it just seems crazy to me
3: yeah you know that's why I really enjoyed eighty six Melrose Place is because Lily gave me one of my first opportunities to really not be attractive i mean for for me, I look my hair is all slicked back you know close yeah. to my head, right? I'm in that you know detective lighting in a dusk dark gloomy room i'm wearing drab colors right my makeup oh, yeah. is poorly nil like i have nothing on so it was it's tough for me especially in the beginning to watch because the first time i watched it and i'm gonna apologize right now mom because of how i opened up this statement i looked at it i'm like oh my god that's my mother like <laughs> <laughs> i'm reading something in scowling i'm like oh my god that's my
2: mom <laughs> I think it's just great. The the thing I loved about uh, the scenes with Turin, it's all, uh, it's, it's very much the, that scene from a lot of films. And it's like, I'm not saying that it's kind of derivative, but it's like, there must be a jury to play something which is a staple of so many films of having the interrogation scene. Right.
3: I love the way, because we shot it completely different. And the way Lily edited it was, I thought, phenomenal and so creative and and fed the storyline and the unknowns in the in the script the original script before edit um i was in the whole movie from start to finish but if you already know there's a detective in the beginning of the movie you kind of know there's something criminal that probably happened so they didn't want to give away what really the crux, you know, the hook, the balance of the movie. So I thought it was genius the way they did it and uh, much more viewer engaging. So I applaud it. Even though I got taken out of the first half and then they did that great sequence, which I think was genius. So as, as a producer mind, uh, I would have probably done the same thing if my editor had suggested it.
2: Yeah, and uh, to talk about the movie, so like, uh, what's it like working with a female director as well? Because that's something which we're finally starting to see a bit more of, but still very short on the ground.
3: Right. And, you know, I'm not one, you know, I'm all for diversity and equal opportunity for sure. Equal pay, absolutely. But I'm not about like, oh, we should give someone a job just because of the way they look or how they identify. I really, I think it should be on your qualifications because if a movie sucks, it sucks, right? You need people that know what they're doing. And that goes across the board in every form of business. You know, just because you look the part doesn't mean you can do a good job. And, you know, that's where I think... You know, life is imitating art, right? In acting, we want people that look the part, right? Because we're just pretending. But in real life, (laughs) we need them really to know what they're doing. And the women I've worked with, I've worked with a few women directors. They know what they're doing, and they have fought hard to get that opportunity. It wasn't just handed to them because of the way they looked or how they identified. And that's, of all races, you know, uh, Punky Brewster. I worked with my first black female director. Lily, uh, is, you know, she's, uh, uh Lebanese. Yes. But I was going to say, um, uh, what do we, call- I, I don't even know the words to say anymore that are correct. A minority, right. She's a minority female, right. Yep. Uh, director I've worked, I did a movie, uh, that was called. Co- oh God. I can't remember what it's called. Um, It'll come to me and i had a female lesbian director yeah so uh but of all the work i can name three that's pretty sad yeah. yeah
2: i mean i i think the flip side of what you're saying is and so it's totally right people shouldn't just just get a movie because of uh, what box they fall into however i think it's about people who haven't been given those opportunities, haven't been enfranchised to go towards kind of getting these certain qualifications, like who haven't got a roadmap to being director because they haven't seen it to be it. Well, right. I think that's where we where we need to do.
3: Everything work. you have to work the chain of command, right? No matter what business we are, right? You start in the mail room, <laughs> right? Right. That's the ongoing thing. You start in the mail room and then you work your way up. And that's kind of in America, that's been our capitalism. You get up earlier than everyone else, you do the extra time, you will be promoted. And it really does happen like that here. So I think the problem in it is that a lot of the opportunities on the lower levels get bypassed. Uh, I worked on, uh, like you said, Melrose Place, and, uh, I screen tested for a lot of Aaron spellings. He's not with us anymore. Rest his soul. Uh, a lot of his, uh, productions. And I will tell you that, there was one season where the he had so many productions going in for pilot season that he didn't know what the right hand and the left hand were doing. So under his umbrella, he had both TV series. But the producers on this one were competing with the producers on this one. My manager should have probably just come out and said, okay, look, guys, you guys are competing against yourself. But she was like, hey, if they don't know, they don't know. And they kept raising my rate competing against themselves well the the two contracts hit aaron spelling's desk well he's not dumb right he's <laughs> aware of what he's paying for and he's like what the heck right you guys are just making me pay more
2: <laughs> did you say but i've signed it now so it's too late to worry about it
3: <laughs> no you cut me out of the entire process and said what does she need that kind of money for she's a girl
2: oh, geez, oh, look, you know, as you say, good rest of the soul and everything, but that, yeah, that's not good.
3: No, you know, that's back in the late or early 90s, mid 90s. So, you know, it was yeah. different then. And look, and now we're not starting, but we're still really in those beginning stages of that type of attitude being filtered out. You know, I think it really does take an entire generation to move out of those big, uh, blocks of, uh, social, uh, identities or understandings. Like, you know, once upon a time, all in the family was the rage of sitcom television. Right. Uh, I don't know if you even know of it, uh, where they had meat right uh and like i remember watching the reruns with my dad and everyone thought it was so funny archie bunker you know he could say the rude crass things and it was a hit because there even though everyone knew it was wrong we wanted to laugh at it and it kind of was educational of what's not acceptable yeah. right but then fast forward and roseanne gets rebooted and roseanne kind of is the Archie Bunker, right? She's saying all those crass, unbelievably ridiculous things that were like, what? Oh my God.
2: But I don't don't think she realized how ridiculous they were. I think she was selling those as good.
3: Well, whatever. Archie Bunker could have believed it too. But (laughs) I think we missed an opportunity by judging it by if we see that at least we can then have something to go wait a minute we're laughing at it we're saying like with Archie Bunker I don't think there was anyone at the end of that show that was like I want to be just like Archie Bunker right so but instead the way they fixed it wasn't wasn't to right uh have the character learn through the episodes right it was just cancel her right just cancel that character and I think that's where they made a mistake. But a lot of that, I think, lies in fear—fear fear of, you know, uh, you know, the woke mob and cancel culture. And you know, it was alive and well then. People may only know those words today because we've been forced to live on our screens. But they've been around for a long time. You know, back, you know, in the '40s and '50s, wasn't it called a blacklist?
2: Mm. yeah but but like i mean with the case of roseanne for instance she was selling it in her real life and she was producing that to sell those ideas in a certain way is the problem True. like cause, cause we had Al- we had yeah. alf garnett over here which is our archie bunker like the the british version of that show I'm oh. not sure which came first? and but like the, the the actor behind that uh would talk uh warren mitchell i think it was he would talk about how um like people were stopping on the street saying it's like, oh yeah, good, you stick out to them speaking about minorities. And he goes, No, no, we're laughing at you, mate. We're laughing at you. And that was the whole point mm. was it was the joke was on the people who were selling these kind of misogynistic racist views. Whereas right. with Roseanne, it seemed to be selling the misogynistic views a little bit under her writing. It's just My
3: right, well, I you know, to Archie, I'm talking characters, not person, not yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, no, yeah, but she was writing as well, so that was where that
3: Archie Bunker's credit I mean, not credit, but I guess (laughs) help aid he didn't have social media, right? (laughs) Because he so he didn't have a megaphone to promote outside of his own doorway and newspaper, whereas nowadays. You know, you send out a tweet and eight years later, somebody can dig it up and then persecute for great. it. and I think That's that great. needs to be worked on. You know, we, yeah. I don't know anyone that is faultless and I think we need to be a little more forgiving and identify with each other and that we all can grow, must grow and will grow with love and strong words of you know condemnation at times but i think if if we're missing the like you know instruct but in love you know tell the truth speak the truth but in love don't speak the truth in anger because then we just i don't know about you but i'll just block it out if someone is yelling at me i don't even hear the words they say i just tune out because i'm like it's just loud and piercing but they could be saying something I completely disagree with. But if they come into here and like, Terry, have you ever thought about this? Then it makes me lean in because I gotta hear. And then it's actually being absorbed. It's interesting little fact. It goes with public speaking. If you're on a microphone, don't yell, speak softly. The room will go quiet because everybody just naturally leans in and you captivate the audience
2: i think there's certainly something very true in what you're saying that uh like if someone has a tweet from 10 years ago and that's used to fire them yeah it should be about what their views are now like if we really want to be this kind forgiving society which i believe we do want to be surely it should be about just because we've just heard this doesn't mean that's their view now we heard this from like so many years ago and i think people should be given chance to grow and evolve i think some of the stuff roseanne said was very vile and very kind of like um yeah just just not respectful for different races whatever else but if she then said i feel like i've learned from this i want to change and came at it with some honesty. then I think that she should be given that opportunity.
3: Well, that brings us back to like our parents, right? Our parents grew up and had different ideas. They, uh, you know, even like women, they were supposed to raise the children and not go to work, right? My whole uh, soap opera experience, all my children, soap Mm. were created and called soaps because there was a brainchild in one of the networks that says, we have a uh, diagram, a graphic of people that we can sell to and we need to find a way to sell to them so if we can get that average housewife while she's home to turn on the boob tube which is another way way they why they call it the boob tube right because nursing moms at home then we can sell them soap- that where that sounds come from yes really <laughs> soaps because they were selling soap and cleansing boob tube because mothers were at home all day nursing their babies so how can they market and sell advertising to them and soap operas started to decline when i was on them um, after 9 11 because then we came out with everyone wants you know things immediately right it's all about uh, 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 convenience so then we got our dvrs right and we started recording everything and fast forwarding over all the advertisements well we shot ourselves in the foot we fast forward over all the advertisements we quit buying because we quit watching whatever we we're supposed to be force fed to buy pepsi instead of coke so therefore pepsi's not a sponsor anymore because the advertising isn't working
2: <laughs> so then yeah, we, well, we Netflix and on now. demand now Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not all bad i'm just saying like we got on right. demand from that
3: but you know there is a yin and yang there is two sides of how we have to really be a balance and and i think as viewers and as you know patrons and consumers we have to be aware of uh how the media how the entertainment business how they feed us how they project to us right even yourself like i you know when I had my radio show going to bed with Terry Ivans, it was late night. Yeah. why Oh, I'll use the double entendre going to bed with Terry. Well, now it's like, it's not so PC. Like, I wonder if YouTube is going to go, you know what? We're going to, you know, remove those streams of her. <laughs> right. So I went and did Vimeo because Vimeo is not going to remove it just because the title might stand out as being something as porn. But when I was doing it, when we came up with the concept with many many of us we didn't think that at all we were like oh yeah but it's late night uh you know that that'll be a way to catch viewers i knew what yeah. i was doing but uh, probably not so hey good. hey look
2: for me if you want to use Let's face it, men's kind of own preconceptions against them do it. I say,
3: <laughs> so it's only good to men, but not to any other gender.
2: <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, come on, look, I, I, I'm prepared Can to you? say, being being the uh, the sexuality I am, the color of skin I am, and the gender I, I am, I. People might, of, of all those ilks, have tend to have got the breaks over the years. If kind of we get a bit of blowback now, I can handle it.
3: I, I love that you say that. But, like, my dad is a white male through and through. And, you know, I remember watching Roots with him as a young kid yeah. and looking at him and going, oh, you're awful. You're- <laughs> my dad's like, what? I wasn't there. That's not yeah." yeah. Right, and that's from watching Ruth as a child. That I just got stuck in my head. That oh my gosh, white men are mean, and that was wrong. That was a stereotype of that time period. Yeah. It's definitely not what it is today. So to see that white males uh, now, I'm not saying that all white males are innocent, and there is, and I the word systemic really systematically. From the bottom, moving up to the links, uh, always need to grow and change. But I think it's unfair to segregate any class of people, any gender of people, and any race.
2: I think, I think the difficulty is it's like we're all very much reacting very quickly to the internet and the flow of information becoming so much quicker and it being harder for people who are doing some shady shit. Part of oh, the it was very it's very much hard harder for them to keep it secret so it all suddenly came out and we we're all reacting to this and i don't think we any of us really know how to react and so there is a, a whiplash effect of maybe i don't know that i i don't feel like again as a white straight cis male uh whatever else i don't feel like i'm getting um, maligned by this it's just like people are going it's like maybe people who fit that profile have got away with a lot of sh- stuff they shouldn't be getting away with now and like there was a reaction to that are we reacting to it perfectly probably not but i think it's an okay reaction
3: well you know know, there's always been uh from the beginning of time i mean you can read about it in the old testament where there were tribes of people right your family was a tribe and you did whatever was best for your tribe if you were going to hire you wanted to hire inside your family right Hire inside your tribe so i think because of what things that have transpired throughout our countries our multiple different countries history where you're right, the people with wealth had the power, and more times than not, the people that had the power were men, and it didn't matter what skin color they had, they were men. And so therefore, whatever tribes they were in, they had advances that went up like this, which is why, you know, women didn't even get in in America, women didn't even get considered for college scholarships for athletics until the late 70s because yeah. title nine didn't even pass until like 72 or 74. And yeah. now if they're wanting to take it completely off the books and like, you just took women's rights completely off the table. Like what you're saying is right and true, but you're going too far. So, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, but like, I, I feel like that um see it to be it is what we're seeing at the moment. So we are starting to see like uh, Patty Jenkins uh, making Wonder Woman and you've got, uh, so many kind of wonderful black directors and uh, actors who are kind of taking the forefront. And it seems to be the more you represent these groups, the more you see them coming up, because like, the, the, again, it's in front enfranchising oh, people. What right. do you think is the most important thing to do within the industry to enfranchise uh, different people?
3: Oh, I think it starts with the writing. I think we need to write stories about different people, races, ages. Uh, the entertainment business as a whole tends to target audience and produce for a target audience. So forever, they say 18 to whatever the age is, I think it's 40, 18 to yeah, 40, yeah. whatever that age is, that that's their target So anyone that's over 40, they don't care about. And really, then the, the child market's got their own thing, right? Like I worked on so many child shows, Doogie Howser. Right, Punky Brewster; those are all prime time. They were at eight o'clock on a major network. Now, all child programming are on cable.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You get a whole child <laughs> channel instead.
3: Right. They don't even really give, you know, children networks or teen networks outside of your local. It's all cable, right? It's all the smaller stations uh, that give their time, their prime time lineup to that. So, I think it starts with the writing. We need to write. But then, you know, there could be tons of writing, but if no one's going to watch it, no one's paying for the ticket to watch the stories about 70 year old grandparents, you know, learning how to swim, right? No matter how funny it might be, then there's no market for it. So it's, then you go, well, then it's not the writer, then it must be the consumer. So I think that is a round the circle, yin yang of, you know, we as consumers have all the power. If we want something or do not want something, we buy it or we don't buy it. We watch it or we don't watch it and then we can have control. And the power of the pen has always worked. Now that our children are very very rarely ever using, learning how to use a, a utensil like a pen, but the power of our mind and, and writing it out, typing it out and sending an email but the power of the pen, actually taking the time to write it on paper, putting that stamp on it, that is still and has only become the most powerful force that we have as an
2: individual. The only other thing I would argue about that is that also, I think the uh, democratization of art being made possible by the independent, uh, by, by kind of by the Internet, people being able to put out their own stuff. Uh, has taken the power away from these kind of uh, these gatekeepers who decides what gets seen and what doesn't. Because as much as we can choose what we want to watch, if it's not put in front of us because people have stopped it being made, that's a huge problem. Now yeah. anyone can be a creator. Now anyone can put something on YouTube. You mentioned your your chat show went on YouTube. That's kind of taking power directly in your own hands, not waiting for someone else to do it, which I think is just so wonderful.
3: Right. Right. And I have a lot of friends that have done that. Um, I have a great friend named David White who created this, uh, it's like Netflix, but it's for very conservative, clean content. And it's called Pure Flix. And he uh, was, I knew him as an actor from the time we were teenagers. And way before everybody ever even thought of it, he's like, you know what, I'm going to make my own. And he n- not only did, but he created his own network, and he's got his own channel, and he did it way before anybody else. And now he's got all these great movies, but he's targeting to a certain demographic, and he's honed in on it. So, maybe what you're saying is that there's now we have so many different streaming possibilities, right? D- uh, that as a uh, as a viewer, we can choose what service we're going to pay for and what content we want to watch. Yeah. Uh, think of like comes to mind on netflix when they showed that i'm not even going to say the name of that movie because i don't want to give it any pub but basically it was like child pornography and they were saying no it's showing this this and this on one side which yeah maybe it was but kind of like my show going to bed with terry ivins it's also really leading down a road where it's hooking on uh maybe you know not right thinking in a sexual sense regarding children so Netflix really came under heat. I don't I don't follow it. So I didn't know if they took it off or if they left it up there, but I know a lot of viewers canceled their uh, subscriptions to Netflix over those types of movies being shown on Netflix because they didn't want that type of Uh, Content on there anything having to do with human trafficking or child pornography Which you know if they're gonna go after on Twitter and on Facebook and on YouTube a different uh, Ideology or political view then by all means they should go after the human traffickers Right. I mean we should at least as a global unit say no more human trafficking let alone child pornography, can we at least protect our children? You know the innocence, and I it just really strikes me. It's hard for me to get on board when they are shutting down points of view and ideology when they are not shutting down illegal activity. I don't know.
2: Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think there's certainly enough problems to go around. Anyway, I think right? it's very difficult. To, you know. Uh, hopefully, it's not an either or scenario. Hopefully, we can tackle all these things.
3: I, I think it's due time. And if living through the entertainment business opens the eyes to these other diverse yeah. topics that are so important, then that's great because right right what do they say what comes first the chicken or egg? Is life imitate art or art imitate life? Right? So as entertainers, as your show, you have a vocal point, a megaphone to make change, to grow and to educate your viewers on how they can remain in control and not let just one side just because they're angry do all the talking
2: so about for you terry given that you were a child actor yourself and we're talking about some of these kind of issues around uh, children protection like did you ever feel unsafe or threatened in any of the environments you were in as an actor
3: i'm so happy to be able to answer this question no i i was uh it has to be you know the grace of god because
2: yeah
3: it just because yeah this town is really filthy there are, i used to say there are good hearts and bad hearts and i was lucky enough to fall into the tribe of good hearts and i mean tribe just meaning just people that were good and real and had good intentions i uh, had uh, wonderful managers and agents that blocked all those things I didn't they didn't question me I said I didn't want to do nudity and I didn't want to do chop them up horror films so I never auditioned for any of those type of roles and then when I got old enough uh I had to start making that decision and that's how I wind up on the soap opera because my agent said look You said you don't, you you don't want to do, chop them up. And yeah, you're, you're getting too old to play high school and you don't want to do nudity. So you're like, do you want to work? (laughs) (laughs) So they're like, we'll put you on a soap opera. You won't have to do nudity and you won't be chopping up body parts. How's that? And I'm like, ah, okay. Then that's what I'll do.
2: (laughs) I I think you've got away with working just a little bit over the years.
3: (laughs) I but i've stuck to the things that are in my heart and i think no yeah. matter what we do for a living if we stick to our own set of fundamentals that make us look ourselves in the mirror and smile then no matter what we're gonna feel good about ourselves and we're gonna project onto our children the same powerhouse
2: and if you get to your end of your career and yeah you've been in loads of big screen films but you've been in uh, on tv shows and they're nothing that you want to do what's the point what, like yeah you've got the fame but you haven't got what you actually went in it for
3: right or how about how many of us where we got what we asked for and then when we're doing it we're miserable we're miserable because yeah. for whatever reason it's not how we anticipated. it i mean i've had a lot of jobs where i really wanted and then when i got them i'm alone <coughs> where i was like I'm pulling my rolling suitcase down another lonely hotel hallway and my child is a toddler. And I'm like, why am I doing this? I'm the, I'm eating alone. I'm alone. And this is before COVID, right? Actors live a very solitudinal life. And, you know, and I'm like, why is that? I'd rather be home with my baby than be, you know, on location living, which when I was younger, oh, my God, I loved it. But, yeah. you know, as I got older, I'm like, gosh, there's so much more that I want. So, it, you know, now I don't I personally I personally make that choice of I still may feel lonely, but I'm counting the blessings. I'm thankful that I get this opportunity to, you know, earn a living and I'm thankful that I get to meet new people. And I try to see all the positives, go see a museum in that city and learn about, you know, some people probably roll their eyes at that, but it's really true. I've, I've gone to some really amazing museums in different cities that I would never think of going, like in Oklahoma. I went to the music museum in Tulsa. There's nothing else to do, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what did I see? I saw my my stepdad's name on the wall. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Like, And he's like, oh, yeah, I never told you that. And I'm like, well, I,
2: I knew you were from Oklahoma, but... <laughs> Amazing, Uh, just to wrap things up, like we've been talking about 86 Melrose Avenue out on the 20th of April, please everyone do check it out. Uh, But what for you, because you've worked on everything from kind of like these uh, big budget productions to kind of serialized TV shows, soap operas and these independent films. What's the kind of appeal of these wonderful independent films for you?
3: The appeal for me is storytelling uh, and the ability to be cast and hired. So much of the time, uh, they'll, they'll say A-list actors or whatnot. But uh, I think the studio heads fearful that they'll lose their job if their numbers aren't high enough uh, for box office draw that they tend to rely on that name before and ahead of the title. And so a lot of great talent gets uh, missed opportunities. And then once that that name that's above the title flops a couple times. You notice they only give them about two times and then they're gone and then they have to produce things on their own. Uh, So for me, it's the quality of work. Like with Lily, her storytelling is so rich and so good. And there's a purpose and a reason to watch it. And she's not telling you this is what you should think. She's opening your mind to question yourself. How do I really feel about that? Because I catch myself crying at moments that I wouldn't think would Affect me where I'm like, oh my gosh, or issues that I didn't even know were an issue. And I'm like, I want these people together. And then I'm like, well, why can't they be together? And like, Terry, don't you know it's against the law in their countries for them to even talk to each other? I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been living under a rock my whole life. And they're like, apparently so. I'm like, oh. So, it, you know, independent filmmaking can bring to life so many things that. We live in our own little bubble of getting our kids off to school on time and getting to work and you know, trying to exercise, right? Let alone get that color in our hair to get rid of the grays that we forget to ever be able to really pick up a newspaper and read the bottom of the lines instead of the headline. The headlines are always misleading. But if you go to like the last paragraph, you probably get exactly what they're talking about. And that's better information
2: obviously, I can't relate to dyeing my hair. I'm a natural red, obviously. No, here. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> we we'll that up there. Thank you so much for joining oh. us today. Uh, just to remind everyone, that is uh, 86 Melrose Avenue. It's out on the 20th of April. Where can I find it?
3: Oh, my gosh. It's video on demand across every streaming network. Uh, you name it. iTunes, Amazon. I mean, it's it's everywhere, thankfully. Internationally and domestically
2: fantastic check that out on the 20th of april thank you very much terry ivans that's been a fantastic chat today
3: have a wonderful easter everyone
0: and I still can't believe you tried to with my rap and I think it would be best you got to step in instead Tell me how could we have come this far, a journey for love, just to be torn apart. If I could write the perfect ending, you'd be here with me now. I know we will be connected forever somehow. She said, they come coming, my love, we've got to hide. Everything is not alright. She said, keep running, my love, they running.
2: Double today, so already today, we've interviewed Terry Ivans from the new film *86 Melrose Avenue*, and now we're about to speak to the writer and director and producer of that film. She is also the uh, writer, director, and I'm pretty sure producer of all these things. But it's born in Beirut. Reverberation, light gets in the way. She is from Beirut, Lebanon. Please welcome to the Doctor Swoo Show filmmaker Lily Mata. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank How you, are doing tonight? I'm doing wonderful, and yourself? Yeah, not too
2: bad, thanks. In fact, I say tonight it's like about midday around there.
1: Yeah, it's twelve thirty p.m. That's correct. How are you guys
2: doing? uh, Surviving the pandemic at the moment.
1: You know, as much as anybody can be during those tough times, you know, you kind of adjust to everything. We're going a little bit crazy, of course, but we hope for the best. I think we're gonna. It's gonna get surely and slowly better. Yeah, and you're there in L.A. now, I believe. Yeah. Yes, Los Angeles, yes.
2: How, how's the vibe there? Like, what's it like to be in the film industry and one of the hubs of film and uh, be facing something like this where the film industry has been so hit?
1: Yeah, it's been really hit by the COVID. Um, it's completely paralyzed in a lot of ways. I mean, there's still content on uh, VOD, uh, uh, on any other platform, but the... Theatrical distribution is completely paralyzed. Same for uh, onboard entertainment airplanes. Nobody's traveling or most people are not traveling. And uh, those have been really affected very much. Um, Of course, everybody is watching on cable, on TV. Those are still happening. But, you know, the main source of revenue for any film is mainly theatrical is actually the biggest one and it's really paralyzed here. I don't know how it is on your end. You are in England, is that correct? Yes. So I don't know if any theater is open in England. Here, uh, very few have just opened, but most people are not going to the theaters.
2: Yeah, I've got a lot of friends who are in the entertainment business and kind of all industries. So some are are, are filmmakers, some are actors, some are are people who do stage shows. And uh, yeah, it's just all ground to a halt and uh, not much support. Over here, I don't know how the support and structure's been in America.
1: You know, it's been very tough releasing any film now, and it's very bad timing uh, ever since uh, COVID started. And it's going to be the same way, I think, till at least end of twenty one. So it's really a bad time to release anything. On the other hand, you can't have a film sit for a couple of years without distribution. So it's really a tough call. Uh, everything is open here, believe it or not. I think, I don't know if restaurants are open on your end, cafes, restaurants, everything is open. Of course, people are practicing social distancing, wearing masks and capacity in any uh, restaurant or cafes, I think limited to 30%. But uh, as opposed to France, I, I have a lot of friends in France who told me everything's closed. I mean, you can only take, take out and deliveries, but uh, you cannot sit anywhere. No, here quite the opposite, everything is open.
2: No, we're we're the same as France, except for when we've now just got to the uh, point where we can have meet six people outside. So uh, for the first time, I had family around this weekend. It's just a really weird time, but yeah, the, we're we're kind of quite on the strict end of it. I'm just hoping that's going to pay off as we start to get vaccines out. That when we do start to lax things up, that at least it'll be safe to do so.
1: Right, absolutely. We're all hoping for that. We're going crazy staying with ourselves.
2: <laughs> yeah. I at the risk of getting political, it sounds like at least there is a plan in America now.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's really tough. And I think it's very easy to, you know, point the finger you didn't do a good job or the other one did a better job. I think, you know, I don't want to get into politics either. But I think uh, we're on the right path right now. And hopefully most Americans will be vaccinated by, I think, June. I hope so. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, of course, we're here to talk about yourself, though, and this new movie. And uh, let's talk a bit about your previous work, though, because uh, uh, Born in Beirut, which was a documentary short, tell us a bit about that to begin with.
1: It was a personal, yeah, it was a personal documentary uh, about my experience growing up during the war in Lebanon. I was born during the war, which lasted about seventeen years. People call it a civil war. It was actually a war of the others on our land with. A lot of factions, a lot of countries involved, a lot of mercenaries involved, and it was a very tough experience growing up during the war, and I just wanted to give it, I wanted it to be an ode to Beirut, to a city that always survives and uh, resurrects from the ashes. It's like a phoenix that never dies, it goes, it stands up again, and it's resiliency, you know, uh, it's a country that never dies, really. After everything we've been through, we rebuild, we get up, we walk again. Look at the example of what happened on August 4th, the third biggest um, nuclear explosion in the world that destroyed half the city. And, you know, the Lebanese are very resilient. And doesn't mean that they were not deeply affected. It was horrible what has happened. But again, it's about, you know, keep keeping moving, keep moving. Get up, walk again. It's not easy. Pick up the pieces. Get up, walk again. So I just wanted to give um, a little tribute to my city, to my capital, and regardless of growing up during all the very hard times that I do not wish upon anyone, I just wanted to express my love and my um, uh, my, my love and my resilience to Beirut, which has been through a lot, and that continues to to strive and to. To, to build and to live, regardless. Yeah. And I think it's it's very hard for
2: anyone who's kind of making their first movie to convince those around them that it's something that, no, this is a real thing, this is a thing that's worth it. If you're in the middle of a war, how do you convince people, no, no, this is really important to do? I, I can see the importance, but like, was it uh, greeted with kind of, uh, that there was a good idea to do this?
1: Well, uh, it was part of my MFA at Loyola Marymount University, so I had to create a short film. I created an interpersonal documentary, about, which was 15 minutes long, about my experience. Most people, it's sad to say, when I first came, now I'm doing my MFA, so you would expect that most students were at least, you know, a little bit um, well-versed in geography or in you'd be surprised. So most people did not know not only where Lebanon was, did not know that we had a war. So it was a little bit trying to, again, place Lebanon on the map to a lot of people who had no clue what it was, where it was, and what had happened to this country that is very small and yet bigger than life. So, and I also wanted, you know, once you get out of Lebanon and you look at it from a different angle, there's a little bit more of introspection and you look at it from a different perspective. So, I just wanted the adult Lily today to create this documentary and, in some ways, talk back to the little Lily, to the little child that was born during the war and help her. I wouldn't say get over it, but help her, you know, um, pick up the pieces and say, it's okay. We go on. We have to go on. This is how it is. Life goes on. And also, in a lot of ways, it was a tribute to my country, to my city, to my family, who's been through a lot, and to my Lebanese citizens, uh, who have been through a lot. So in some ways, it was an expression of love, a poem to Beirut.
2: Yeah, and it sounds like uh, you grew up with this war just being part of the fabric of your country. What's Mm. it like when you get outside of that and you see it from the outside?
1: It was funny, when I first came to Los Angeles, a lot of friends would plan ahead for, like, what are you doing on Christmas or on Easter? I'm like, uh, it's four months down the road. For me, I plan every day because what if the next day doesn't come? You know, it was kind of weird. And I'm used to surviving, not to living. It's like you have to smell the roses, take your time. Where growing up during the war, there's always the survival mechanism. You know, you keep moving, you keep moving, keep moving. Things are a little, I wouldn't say fast, but the pace is different. Uh, The planning is definitely different. You don't know if there will be the next day, let alone the next six months. So it was kind of funny to adjust to a very laid back, calm, um, serene life versus what I had been through, which is very hectic, very chaotic, very unpredictable, and very violent. Mm -hmm. It sounds like perfect um, uh, training to be a director. <laughs> you know, I think everybody has a story. We all have a story, whether we're we're from Lebanon or the States or Europe or anywhere else. We're all very interesting people with different stories, and it's sharing these stories that connect us together, and I think uh, brings us bring us all together. So, moving
2: on to your next project, uh, Reverberation. What was the story of that one?
1: Reverberation, it was a story about a poet who is stuck, unable to write, and his muse who dies in a car accident with him uh, comes back to haunt him because he blames himself for the accident. And it's about uh, the connection that even if somebody dies, somebody you love dies, that you have to bring them back in some ways so that you can go on, especially when you are a poet, an artistic person. It's about uh, people who connect together for a mutual need for existence. You need to, to have somebody that helps you, in your that, that not only complements you, but we all need someone. It's a need to exist and to be loved. So it's part, of, it's part of the fabric of life. And it's about him not being able to overcome her death. And therefore, he in some way brings her back to life in his mind so he can go on. And a lot of your writing
2: and uh, your uh, production seems very personal. What was the was there a personal trigger for that
1: story? I think I think you can see in all my film, death is prevalent. I think the only certainty I grew up to have around me constantly is death. You are always, always. I'm not going to say haunted by death because it sounds negative or dark, but I think it's the only certainty, as much as life is a certainty. You know, it's like I always call it like the uh, fraternal twins. They don't look the same. Death and life don't look at all the same. But somewhat they have the same genes. It's the ending and the beginning and the ending. It's that coming full circle. Uh, and death is um, is something we have to accept. And sometimes it's not a bad thing to talk about it. But I grew up where death was something that would happen anytime. That it was just a matter of time. You wouldn't know when or where. So it was always there. You know, it was always there next to you, not knowing when it's gonna erupt. Um, there's always relationship and connection in my films. I talk about relationship, I talk about death, and uh, I talk about, um, in a lot of ways, death and life are, death is a continuity of life. In, for, for me, it comes full circle. So I think it's like, for me, I came, I started with death to go back to life because growing up during the war, it was more about not living, but surviving. And death was very, very present, constantly.
2: It Really seems like uh, you came out of that those experiences with a very healthy outlook on it, whereas a lot of people don't. What What do you think? What do you owe that to?
1: Well, I think we all grow up. I mean, your experiences shape who you become, and uh, it shapes also your perspective. And I think it's a matter of. Uh, I'm going to say it again. Keep moving. You got to get up, walk. It's not easy. Pick up the pieces and walk. It's one thing to play a victim and say, okay, I've had a terrible life. I'm messed up, but we won't bring anything. And I think it's very important for us to live back the experience, to to own it. You have to own it so you can grieve and overcome it. If you are in denial, you're never going to be able to overcome something. And if you're stuck on the past and not able to move on, you're not going to even resolve it. So it's very important to be able to talk about it to yourself, to others. For me, it was through my writing. You know, it's like my therapy. I swim also. I take that emotional pain and throw it in the swimming pool when I'm swimming every day. I need that. I think it's therapeutic in a lot of ways. you got to find something that helps you, like an outlet, that helps you externalize that pain that is stuck inside of you. You know, whether through physical activity, whether through a form of art, whether through therapy, it's very important to be able to to take something, address it, um, accept it, even if you have to grieve it, in order to be able to move on. Otherwise, you'll always be stuck in the past and you will never be able to move, move on with your life. It's important. I mean, I don't know how healthy I am. I think we all are affected by our experiences and um, you know I talk about it in my films but I try not to make it so dark or so um, negative you know but it's important to talk about these things you know so people learn so people understand so people discover what's around us and what we go through and how they shape our experiences shape who we become and the outlook we have on life and on other people that's really great uh, so before we go on to your new film, just very quickly, Life Gets in the Way. Life getting in the Way it was a, a dramedy, a dramatic comedy about a person who is also haunted by the memories of the past, the war, and suddenly in a new city that moves very fast and the how how hard it is for her to find a relationship. You know, Los Angeles is a city where anybody can date, but it's so hard to have a relationship. And that's very important. People are, you know, you can be dating all the time, but it moves to such a fast pace. And in a lot of ways, um, everybody is just focused on his thing, on his work. And, you know, there's not much interaction unless you go out in the cafes or restaurant and then you mix. But it's a very lonely city in a lot of ways. And I wanted to show that everybody has this match. And this person found her match through is something funny through her work. So it's it addresses also the loneliness, not only in Los Angeles, but the loneliness within people.
2: Do you think that uh, these current times, the COVID situation has uh, revealed some of that about ourselves and about the, these
1: places? Uh, yeah, well, people at first were lonely because out of choice. Today, you don't have a choice. We're isolated, we're quarantined. Yeah. And... You know, I never thought, you know, I bought a bicycle. I never thought I'd spend so many hours with my bicycle just because, I mean, I have a very, um, I'm blessed to have very close friends, a very uh, intimate circle of friends. We've all been isolating and only meeting with three or four friends who have been very careful and meet all of us on Sunday for dinner or Saturday for dinner, just enough not to go nuts because being with yourself all the time is really unhealthy. I mean, we all need time for ourselves, but a prolonged time where you're all alone for like a year, it really tests your sanity.
2: Yeah, and it just seems like uh, if you look back maybe on that film of yours that you're talking about, a lot of the messages could seem very timely about now.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Loneliness is, uh, again, prolonged loneliness is very unhealthy in my opinion. You need to be out there, you need to mix with people. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, moving on to the new film, uh, 86 Melrose Avenue. Uh, we watched it just earlier today in preparation for this. Uh, absolutely loved it. So many interesting ideas in there. How does the story first start for you?
1: Uh, I could not hear you. It broke up. How did the, those
2: stories? How did the story of 86 Melrose Avenue first come to you? What was the the impetus for it? Uh,
1: well, the idea started brewing in my head in 2015. It was a conflation of ideas that came together, Um, human connection, inner connection, everybody has a story. And I've been always interested in relationships and interaction amongst people. And I believe we're all very interesting and complex human beings. So I wanted to explore those ideas. Uh, At the same time, I wanted to explore disconnection. You know, uh, in today's fast-paced and high-tech world, I feel as if we have become somewhat desensitized and disconnected. You know, I just noticed that we don't talk to one another anymore. We talk at one another. And I feel we don't listen to one another anymore. I see uh, that in short, we have a communication problem. And I find it especially true between people who are from different countries, different places, different cultures. And I find that as a whole, we are scared of one another. We are scared of differences. We are frightened of the other. And this is how precisely those differences that I find in my opinion, so unique and interesting that I chose to address in my film. And I wanted to also highlight a variety of current uh, issues that are very challenging in our society. First of all, gun violence in the US mainly, but also all over the world, post-traumatic stress disorder, mental illness, depression, and I don't know if you're aware of that, but gun violence is so prevalent in the United States we have over forty thousand Americans a year die yeah. because of guns. yeah, and if we look what happened a couple of weeks ago last week in Atlanta and Boulder, Colorado, so I wanted to also address the hidden horrors of the of mental illness and PTSD, which I call the invisible scars
2: yeah, and it seems to be so, so exacerbated in a country where it's so impossible to even have the conversation. Absolutely. As soon as you have the conversation, you're trying to take everyone's guns away. No, we're just trying to have a conversation about how we can use them responsibly and what we can do to
1: make that possible. Absolutely. And finally, one of the final reasons I had, again, I mentioned 2015 is because it was a year I was presenting uh, Life Gets In in The Way at several festivals, but it was presenting this feature at the festival in Nice in France. And at the festival amongst the nominees was uh, an Israeli director. And I don't know if you know, but as a Lebanese national, I'm not allowed to have a communication or any relation with Israelis, not Jewish, Israelis. They can be Israeli Christian, uh, Arab Israeli, Jewish Israeli, as long as they're Israelis, because we are enemy countries. I mean, at least according to our governments. Personally, I find that just plain silly. Yes, <laughs> you know, I yes. thinking, And I kept thinking, what, what if, what if? The Lebanese and an Israeli were forced somehow to interact with one another in any, in a certain situation. And that they discovered that the other one is not the enemy at the border as we look at each other, but simply another person just like me who is looking for the same thing. We're all looking for like happiness, a thriving life, the need to fall in love and be loved. I think it's time for peace and being a child of war and from Lebanon, which is the sworn enemy of Israel. It was important for me to make a statement about the possibility of reconciliation and peace for, you know, for which so many Lebanese and Israelis yearn. You know, I think even though our governments have been enemies at war uh, for decades, I think the people of both countries know there's a possible path to peaceful coexistence. I think it's time for it.
2: Yeah, uh, I just love the setup of this movie as well. So uh, to give a kind of brief outline for uh, those who haven't seen it yet, it's set around the idea of a a soldier who's home from war in his daily life, kind of goes over the edge, I won't kind of give everything away, but ends up uh, holding up an art gallery where these disparate group of people are in there, all with their kind of own um, past traumas, and they're forced to interact in this situation with this guy who's holding holding the the gallery up, and it's just the the together of all these different worlds. And I love the fact that obviously there's the obvious story of kind of PTSD and of gun violence, as you say, and uh, these two people from Lebanon and um, and uh, sorry, Israel, Israel, Israel. Israel. Sorry, <laughs> just went blank for a second. Sorry. And uh, that it's obvious it's obvious with those kind of s- stories, but then there's kind of more subtle stories of someone who's just lost someone. And he was traumatized by that. Um, I just love the fact that everyone's got a different backstory. How do you kind of uh, balance all those different ideas going in?
1: Well, I think everybody uh, comes with a background, a package, and everybody has been at least once in his life through something traumatic. Uh, not necessarily war. It can be a train accident, a hostage situation, a robbery, a bad breakup. We all go through a tough experience sometimes in our life that shapes you know, the way we look at life around us at other people. And for me, I wanted to create a story about a diverse group of people and uh, who once they're taken hostage by an ex-Marine suffering from PTSD are forced to not only confront one another, but to also confront their cultural differences and their past. And their looming mortality as time ticks by. So there's all these little themes. And it's funny because... The idea came. I I used to go to art galleries, and I would notice that you meet people from all walks of lives. It can be a neighbor who just walk because you know it's free. anybody can walk in, get a drink, get a, a snack, and just look at the art around them. You know, it can be artists, critics, patrons, neighbor, just people who are art lovers. So this is really where you meet people from all um, walks of life, and it was interesting to discover. You know, little things like one of them has never. Do you know that more than 50 percent of Americans do not have a passport, meaning they have never been outside the U.S. So one of my characters worked as a librarian for years behind between white walls, never got even out of California. So let alone to mix with somebody not only from a different state, but from a different country. So it was people from different backgrounds. You know, some were critics, some were patrons, some were art collector. One of them was a delivery man at the wrong time, the wrong place, you know. And it's funny how to see people interact. And it was very important for me to show the communication between people and how everybody views a situation based on their background, especially towards the end where you also see the detectives trying to piece the puzzle together. So we're all different and everybody has an input and and a viewpoint of any given situation uh, based on their upbringing and their uh, past. It really shapes the present and the way we look at the situation.
2: Yeah. uh, When I was talking to Terry earlier, she was saying about how uh, there was a change kind of in her part, because originally it was meant to be woven throughout and then you have more of the detectives coming in at the end. Uh, So kind of like it's obviously been a living script as you've been making it.
1: Right. Well, I initially, you know, writing is writing and rewriting. So initially it opens with the police, go back to the gallery, and we end with the police before everybody comes full circle, full arc. While in the editing room, I was working with my editor, and um, we realized, you know, in every film, especially in the U.S., um, the first 10 minutes, either they hook you, either I'm not interested in the movie. For anybody, the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes. If I'm not into it, I'm not into it. And, you know, from a European viewpoint, for me, it was important to play back and forth all the time. But I notice audiences here like to have something at least chronological so I don't lose my audience, especially here in the U.S. So... um, It would slow down a little bit the action if I was to start with the detective, which was initially in my script. So I decided just to move one part towards the end and I opened it with the actual action happening in real time before I moved back and forth. And that was a choice that was made in the editing room just because the first 10 minutes, the pace has to be really, really... compelling pace and somewhat fast so you don't lose your audience and that was very important editing choice in terms of the story and the pace that uh, i just start with the actual um i'm not gonna give up the story but with the actual okay. action happening rather than start with a detective and then back to the action happening
2: by the way just so you don't get the wrong idea terry wasn't complaining she said it was it was a great choice for the film
1: yeah, yeah, it was it was better. Of course, no, Terry is wonderful. No, I didn't have this idea at all, but I think it's very important because it helped have a pace that is faster and it's very important. It's always the opening is always the hook. Either you get your audience to be taken or you lose your audience. And it was important for me to make that choice in the editing room. It's different when you see it on a paper versus seeing it on a big screen while you're in the editing room. And I thought it was
2: actually a really uh, interesting thing in the film, the fact that we've been focusing on these same characters for a long while and then you get to see them through the eyes of some new characters, like you get something new partway through the film, which American films, usually they kind of set up everything quite early on.
1: So it's, I thought that was really sometimes good. I call it it's spoon feeding, you know, you gotta spoon feed them because they don't like, and my ending, and I will not give it away, I was going to end it in a way you don't know if she's going to show up or not. But then I shot it both ways. And I thought, in Europe, that will work brilliantly. Here, people don't like if you leave an ending without knowing what's gonna happen. They don't like it. Whether it's bad ending or a good ending, they want an ending. And I've noticed that audiences don't respond well to an open ending.
2: Very quickly, I want to speak about some of the cast. So uh, your leading man, uh, Data Elza.
1: Wonderful. About about working with him. So Date, I met Date three years ago. I was invited to the premiere of a dear friend's film whom he produced and Date had a great role in it. And I really was taken by his acting. And I said to my friend, to Lyle, Lyle, I want to talk to Date. So after the premiere of the movie, the cast was there, I chit-chatted with him and I said, let's meet for a coffee. I have a script, I'm, um, you know, rewriting. I started writing, but I want you, let's meet for a coffee and I want to give you the script. And I know it's, going to be probably a year or two till I get the funding but I'm thinking about you to play uh, the main character and we met a few months later I gave him the script I said look I promise you once I get the funding I want you to play the main character and uh, we did three years later or two and a half years later I told him come to the audition but I knew he was going to be the main lead
2: yeah, and uh, very early on in his career, really, to take on such a kind of uh, powerful role and, and totally pull it off.
1: He's a very talented young actor and he's very, he's wonderful to work with. He has um, he has a lot of talent. It's sad today to see the same names all the time in the movies. It's like you need to see fresh talent, new faces. There's a lot of talent out there and I think date is somebody who's going to have a brilliant career. He's extremely talented to work with. And, you know, I saw him, by the way, in a, in a comedy. He was amazing. So he played a totally opposite role. And so he's very versatile. So, you know, uh, when you see a good actor, whether you saw him in, in a comedy, he can play a dark character just because you can see his talent. And it was very obvious in dates.
2: Langstone Fishbone. So, like, obviously, very much his own actor, very much a a great actor in his own right. But, man, can you see in in him that he's his father's son?
1: Yes, he does look a lot (laughs) like his father. He's wonderful to work with as well. Very calm, very nice, very approachable guy. And uh, he was able to, you know, play the role of Dwayne, which is one of the main ensemble cast. And uh, he's brilliant. He's a great actor to work with and super fun to be around. Yeah. Uh, Gregory, Zarin. Gregory Zarian was yeah. in, my, in my first feature, Life Gets In The Way. He had a, uh, a role in a, a scene, in a big scene. And that's how I met uh, Gregory. He's a wonderful human being, an amazing actor. And I promised yeah. him I'd work with him again after my first feature. And again, I wanted him to play Avi, the main character in my film, and I approached Gregory, and I, he read the script again, same like date. And I said, Gregory, I'd like you to play Avi one day if I get the funding. And we did get the funding, and I kept my promise. And he's a wonderful actor, super talented, super nice guy. He's a gentleman in every way. On set, and also we became friends. He's very, uh, not only very talented, but an amazing guy that I'm lucky to call my friend.
2: Okay. Anastasia Antonia, uh, absolutely wonderful. The, the relationship between those two was
1: just great throughout. Yeah, Anastasia is half Lebanese, half American, and I was auditioning and you know it, was, it would be great to have a Lebanese actress play the role. But you know, I'm not a kind of person who said she has to be Lebanese if there's somebody who's a half Lebanese or not Lebanese who can play the role. I don't discriminate. I'm a person who believes that you can be anybody if you're a great actor and she came to the audition, she was wonderful. She did an amazing audition and I knew she was going to be my Nadia. And they had the great chemistry on set. Yes. She and uh, Abby, Nadia and Abby had a great chemistry on set and she was very sweet, uh, very kind. And uh, she t- looks very Lebanese. Also her beau- she's very pretty obviously and have Lebanese features. And uh, she was a great actress as well. I was lucky, very lucky to have wonderful cast, wonderful cast. And the film is out, I believe, the 20th of April. Am I getting that right? Yes. It's it's really being released uh, domestically by Gravitas Ventures and internationally by Glasshouse Distribution. Both are amazing distribution companies. It comes out here on April 20th. Yes. And we're very excited. And
2: where can we find it?
1: So it's going to be playing on major VOD platforms. I will tell you right now... Uh, it's going to be playing uh, on Comcast, Spectrum, AT&T, DirecTV, Cox, Dish, Verizon, Frontier, suddenly MediaCom, Armstrong, Rogers, um, iTunes, Prime Video, Voodoo, Google Play, YouTube, Microsoft, PlayStation, Fandango, Vimeo, uh, Amazon, um, Baker & Taylor, Alliance, Midwest Tape, Library Bound, Inc. name a few so the first 90 days it goes on video on demand platforms this is how it is in distribution usually theatrical and then vod for three months or four months and then goes back to whether it's netflix or hooli or amazon but there is no theatrical so it starts with vod now and then after three four months it's directly with one of those main uh, streaming companies so guys if you don't find it you're not trying hard enough quite frankly with that list Please watch it. It's a wonderful story. We can all relate to, and it's very timely and compelling. Let's
2: quickly, Lily, what's next for you now, though?
1: I have a feature in development and two TV series that I've already written, written the Bible and uh, pilot. And um, so I'm working uh, on developing those three. So might start with a feature. Actually, I the plan is to start with a feature. Unfortunately, everything has been on standstill because of COVID. And uh, I'm not going to produce it on my own this time because all my films, I've produced them, executive produced them it's and written them. So it's exhausting. And uh, I, am, I have uh, two producing partners that are going to come on board that I'm very excited to work with, but everything is on standstill. So we were supposed to start working this summer on uh, pre-production. So we're going to be delayed another at least six to nine months. Yeah. One of the producers is overseas and is unable to come here. So everything is up in the air now and everything is paralyzed. I just want to see how the distribution, I mean, I'm glad we didn't shoot it last year or now because it's really hard to distribute anything right now. So it's going to be the case till the end of the year. So we'll see what happens. But yes, the feature and two TV projects are in the making, in development right now. Yeah.
2: Keep at it, thank you very much uh, for this wonderful film, for all your hard work, for um, your attitude and spirit in the face of so much you've seen, like not everyone comes out with such a cheery atmosphere or uh, attitude is all I'm gonna say.
1: Yes, you know, I'm a survivor and I think uh, no matter how hideous the past has been, it's always important to, you know, as they say, uh, hear the past, uh, live the present and dream the future. And that's what I'm trying to do. And it's a defensive mechanism and it's good, it works. And uh, I can choose to, you know, cry and whine and be stuck or keep moving. It's very important to keep moving and onward. Thank you very much, Lily. Thank Uh, you, thank you very much for joining us tonight.
2: was Jamelia and her version of Linkin Park's Numb and before that you enjoyed Frog Princess by the Divine Comedy uh, which always reminds me of my 21st birthday we played that there what a fantastic tune and earlier on in the show between the two wonderful interviews we had tonight that was with uh, Lily Mater the uh, director and writer and uh, the actor Terry Ivans, both talking about 86 Melrose Avenue which you can get on demand everywhere the 20th of April and as well as that we were uh, listening between those interviews to the Matt Lee's band so that was Hostile You followed by Hyde and that entire album is available now and the album is Two Sides to Every Hero and you can stream it now or download and uh, buy it to to enjoy forever so guys we're, we're heading towards the end of the show it's been a fantastic one hope you've enjoyed it had some banging tunes had some good chat Uh, Some great interviews. And next week, I'm going to have something a little different for you. We're going to be doing an interview with a couple of guys from a Crop Circles documentary. So that should be great fun. So please do join us for that. If you're listening on the Thursday night original airing of the show, then up next is Talking Codswallop. If not, um, you know, it'll be something else. You know, when we're on the repeat, I don't know who follows us. Might be some tunes. Who knows? But thank you very much for listening this week. I've been Doug Squee. And remember, in a world where you can be anything, please be kind. That was my show. I'm not trying to
0: win. I'm not doing this because I want to beat someone or because I hate someone or because, because I want to blame someone. It's not because it's fun. God knows it's not because it's easy. It's not even because it works because it hardly ever does. I do what I do because it's right. Because it's decent. And above all... It's kind. It's just that. Just kind. Hey, you know, maybe there's no point in any of this at all, but it's the best I can do. Why not? Just to the end. Just be kind.
2: available now to buy in stream that's Alexandra by Clementine